Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second edition of our Back to School series. The second episode is a two-parter. For the first half hour or so, you'll hear our interview with Alan Charles Kors, professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania and co-founder of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Then, for the final 20 minutes of this episode, you'll hear our conversation with Louis Menand, professor of English at Harvard and contributing writer at The New Yorker. I ask Louis about his book, The Marketplace of Ideas, in which he examines and critiques American higher education. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Today we're going to talk with Alan Charles Kors about his vigorous and often unequivocal condemnation of what he calls speech codes, policies in effect at most universities which attempt to weed out hate speech by deeming unacceptable and even punishable certain statements that might be offensive and troubling, at times even racist, sexist, or discriminatory. Kors has written and spoken extensively about such codes. He often argues that they are flat-out unconstitutional, one can easily imagine many university administrations, along with a number of students and faculty, disagreeing with cores. At the same time, it's true that plenty of people on and off college campuses happen to agree with him. At least, they've agreed with him in the past, when he's defended students against questionable charges of harassment or speech violation. We'll explore a bit of Kors's work on the Enlightenment, for which he is a decorated scholar and recipient of the National Humanities Medal. And a bit later, we'll talk about Kors' upbringing in Jersey City, his education at Princeton and in Paris, and what he liked and disliked about the 60s. We're in the Howenstein Center, uh, the office of the Howenstein Center, talking with Alan Charles Kors. Professor Kors, Alan, uh, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. My great pleasure. The first topic I want to get into right off the bat is academic freedom, which is mm-hmm. what so much of your work is about. Speech codes are in place at a number of American universities, perhaps even the majority of universities. They were created with the aim in mind, I think, or many people would argue, of making sure that all students, especially those from marginalized communities, Mm -hmm. can live and learn on campus without fear of hate speech or prejudice or bias. Why is it your view that these codes are not beneficial but rather harmful to Mm -hmm. students? When universities wonderfully ended their policies of discriminatory admissions and opened universities to women, to, as you say, marginalized groups, uh, African-American students. They were following the laws generally known as as civil rights legislation and the various titles of, of civil rights legislation. And the thinking at its best, the best intention thinking, was perfectly rational. It said, What good would it be to admit people if you then put them in an environment that made it impossible for them to work, to study? Uh, What good would it be to admit black students to a campus in which there were nooses hanging uh, over someone's carol in the library every time he went to study? What were introduced were harassment codes. And the legal meaning of harassment and the moral meaning of of harassment is an atmosphere or a continuation of unwelcome acts so extreme, so severe, so pervasive that it prevents someone from working, from fulfilling the very reasons you let someone onto campus. So what you had as the dominant form of speech codes were anti-harassment provisions that included prohibitions on, quote, verbal conduct. And verbal conduct that created a harassing right. environment. Verbal right. conduct means speech, right. uh, expression. Well, it turned out that that was something you could drive an army through. People forgot about the extreme. People forgot about the severe. People forgot about the pervasive. And people also forgot about 
the fact that laws apply equally to all. So we ended up on campuses where you could say anything you wanted to say about an evangelical student, a Catholic student. On certain campuses at the time, a Republican student. You could say anything that you wanted to say. But other people had to be protected from the punchline mm. of a joke. And if you think about it, even for a moment, the struggle for decency in American society has been to bring everyone into the bright light of the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment, equal protection of the law. Mm. And to say to people that you are too weak to live with freedom is to patronize in the most racist and misogynistic way. My first day on campus as an undergraduate, got into a discussion with religion, was told I was going to spend the rest of eternity in hell. <laughs> that's intimidating, that's hostile, but that's also free speech. I learned the way other people thought, and I knew the kinds of things to which I had to respond. The other thing that speech codes deprive people of, and again, there should be protection against actual illegal harassment, but the other thing that speech codes deny is the beauty, the dignity of confronting speech that you abhor with more speech, with reason, with evidence, with moral protest. Christian students on my own campus, for example, had to live through the university honoring Andres Serrano, whose great work of art, The Piss Christ, is a crucifix immersed in the artist's own urine. When they complained, they were told, but this is a university. You can't be protected from ideas that offend you. But this same university had a double standard speech code that wouldn't last a nanosecond without the double standard. The first time that a feminist professor, for example, was hauled to mandatory Christian sensitivity training for having offended evangel an evangelical student who well might be a marginalized group. Right. And certainly at my own university, that would be a marginalized group. But that's not what the university means by marginalized group because their agenda is political and their agenda is America is a racist sexist, homophobic society. Universities have to make whites understand the privilege that they have and protect other people um, from the speech of whites. And what you are teaching the students of America is don't live in liberty. And if you have the power enforce double standards, that is the gravest danger. And if you think about it, it's also illogical because if, in fact, your premise is that we live in a society that denies rights to certain groups, the last thing that you would want to do is say, and the rights of free speech will be assigned disproportionately, as if in the early years of, of Hitler's Third Reich, we said, let's, uh, let's give the state the power to protect Jews from offensive speech. Uh, if the society is racist, it's not going to do that. Moral witness, moral outrage, moral protest is the appropriate response to immoral speech. Well, let's take the, the recent example of the University of Missouri or Yale University. I think that those examples have recently been in... Uh, the uh, public conversation, mm -hmm. not just about speech, but also about race in America, certainly race on college campuses. The narrative about these events, particularly at Missouri, is that there is a serious disconnect between university administrations and students on the question of race. Students feel like they need or deserve more representation of, for instance, uh, African-American professors mm -hmm. on campus. What's your perspective? I guess I'll just ask it generally. What's your perspective on some of these recent instances of student protests, particularly about speech? One, there are more than protests. When you engage in the behavior that was engaged in, say, at Yale, or 
where you call for muscle to remove a student journalist this is Professor from covering Kalec. a demonstration right. at the University of Missouri. Turn that around. Imagine if a African-American reporter covering a demonstration by opponents of affirmative action was not only denied the ability to cover that event, but a professor called for muscle mm. to remove that African-American reporter. There would have been a day on the calendar in perpetuity mm. at that university for doing penance for that outrage. But rights either apply equally to all. And that's the dream of the Constitution we have been trying to realize ever since the founding of the Republic. Or a select group of people are given the power to determine who has rights and who does not have rights. That is not the way that minority points of view advance themselves in a free society, and it's also a violation of a basic human right to freedom of expression and freedom of association. So where do you draw the line on speech? Do you follow John Stuart Mill's harm principle, which is that's the only speech sort of out of bounds of speech that would incite to violence? Uh, yeah, you, you, one doesn't want to mix together Mill's harm principle, Good. Okay. Um, which is that you judge that the only grounds on which the state can intervene right. in the free, personal, private choices, self-concerning choices of another is harm to others, Right. Uh, is harm to others. And Mill's notion of what the Supreme Court eventually will define as a clear and present danger. The distinction that John Stuart Mill makes in On Liberty, probably the greatest book ever written uh, on freedom of speech mm. and expression. The distinction Mill makes is people have the right to walk around with placards proclaiming and to speak proclaiming grain merchants are thieves. If there is, however, an angry mob with torches circling the house of a grain merchant and someone says grain merchants are thieves, if that is an incitement to a crowd to commit violence, then it presents a clear and present danger. And for John Stuart Mill, as really virtually for our own Supreme Court, that's the only circumstance, clear and present danger, not indirect harm, not you're offended, not you don't feel safe. Is there a difference between mere offense? And I think when, when, when the conversations about uh, university speech codes enter the uh, popular uh, conversation, commentators tend to throw up their arms and say, well, no one has the right not to be offended. I think that must be true. There, there, there's another claim that seems to be prominent on university campuses, which is that there's some speech that causes psychological harm, and that psychological harm is as real as physical harm. What would be your response to, to that argument? No one who tells any group of people that they are too weak to live with freedom, with the Bill of Rights, mm. with the 14th Amendment, is their friend. If you are told you are too weak to live with freedom, you've been infantilized and marginalized in the most racist or misogynistic way. And it is true that people do not have a right not to be offended. If people want to call me a fascist, which is deeply painful and hurtful to me, they have the right to call me a fascist. And people shouldn't leave it at that, that people don't have the right not to be offended. People do have the right to act right. on the basis of having been offended, to call out publicly the people who have offended them, to organize protest, to organize demonstrations, to rally support. When the piss Christ was shown on my campus, 
uh, and Andres Serrano honored and the picture glowingly put on the major campus publication, Catholic and evangelical students came to me and said, under the speech code we have, this event cannot take place. I said to them, don't censor. If you don't like what the university is doing, and if the auditors of this podcast could see me, um, I am not a Christian person, right? My, 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 my face and beard, distinctly Jewish. Uh, I said to them, look, if you really want to be effective, what you do is hold a counter event. If I were you, I would label it, that's what the cross means to Penn. This is what the cross means to us. It was the largest religious gathering in the history of the university. It brought people together across all Christian sectarian divides, and people talked about what the cross meant to them. That is how you deal with speech that offends you, with better speech or with different speech, with your own speech, with your own moral witness. If you suppress bigotry, and prejudice. If you repress it, it doesn't magically go away. It just goes deeper into people's souls. And we never have the chance to know how other people think and how we need to respond to them. It's a great crime that we're doing at universities, infantilizing students and teaching them, the university teaching them, that they have the right not to be offended. You're a widely cited and respected scholar of the Enlightenment. You've published a great deal of books. Depends on whom you speak sure, to. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, well, at any rate, you've published a great deal of books, usually from the presses of Oxford or, or Cambridge or Princeton. Do you see a, a link between your scholarship on figures such as Voltaire and your advocacy for free speech rights on campuses? What's the link, in your view, between the Enlightenment mm -hmm. and current debates about free speech? The great cause of the 17th and 18th century, and of the French Enlightenment in particular, was religious toleration and the right of freedom of expression, uh, which Enlightenment thinkers understood was the foundation of any possible free society. So to use modern parlance, they were enemies of religious correctness, and they did not think that people's religious sensibilities had to be protected mm -hmm. from criticism, from disagreement, in the case of Voltaire, from ridicule. And it transformed European civilization from a grotesquely cruel society with torture unto death often for the crimes of heresy or, or blasphemy. And the French Enlightenment secured in the conscience of European civilization the recognition that, that freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, freedom of expression, that these were the only bases for a genuinely progressive society. I want to highlight that term progressive because I, I do want to be honest about something that I, I suspect a lot of people, perhaps a lot of our listeners, wonder when they're presented with the idea that the Enlightenment and current debates about academic freedom are linked. The Enlightenment is considered a progressive movement, progressive with a capital P. But many of the people who are most concerned today about academic freedom tend to be conservatives or tend to be aligned with the right on a number of issues. Is that First, is that a fair characterization in your view? Unfortunately, in human affairs, too many people hold to their principles or not, depending on whose ox right. is being right. gored. So I co-founded an organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, the FIRE.org, which put together the broadest imaginable coalition from far left and liberal Democrat to centrist to conservative to libertarian to religious conservative. That's true of its original and current board of directors. That's true of its entire staff. When we did booklets, uh, free to students to download, when we did booklets on the rights of students on, on college campuses, we put together an editorial board 
that went from Ed Meese on the right, mm. Reagan's attorney general, to Nadine Strozen on the left, was the executive director of the national ACLU. We had Jamin Raskin, a professor of law, whose father, and on the, 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 the real left, whose father had been a, a terrible victim of McCarthyism. We had uh, Alan Dershowitz. We had Ken Cribb, who was also a Reagan associate, Vivian Berger, a liberal Democrat, mm. expert on due process at Columbia. We put together this wholly nonpartisan editorial board, and no fire guide could be published without the unanimous approval of every member of that editorial board. And where you have people committed not to this or that particular partisan outcome, will this advance or hurt conservatives? Will this advance or hurt liberals or radicals? But the principles that allow a free society to remain free, you reach agreement. But if you decide political correct, politically correct cases on the basis of, look how this is hurting conservatives, or during the McCarthy period, look how this is hurting liberals or radicals, then there's no place to stand when power shifts and a different group's rights are being repressed. There, there's a wonderful scene in Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, where Thomas More, an ardent uh, Catholic, Thomas More's son, prospective son-in-law, young Roper, wants him to hunt down every Protestant heretic. And Moore says to him, you're talking about God's laws, not man's. Man's laws protect us here on earth. And if you cut down the trees of those laws to get at what you consider evil, where will you stand, Roper, when those winds blow mm. strong? Mm. I would give the devil the protection of law, Moore says in Bolt's play, at least. I would give the devil a pro the protection of law rather than be there without protection when the winds blow strong. And we need radicals, liberals, centrists, libertarians, conservatives, and the far right to agree that the only way that we can live together with freedom is that the same rules apply to all of us and we all enjoy the same freedoms of speech and the same freedoms of due process and the same protections. When did you become an outspoken advocate for free speech rights? You co-founded, as you say, FIRE uh, in 1999. Was there an, was there an incident in your, in your time as a, an academic that sort of spurred on this, this addition of academic freedom to your daily docket of well, work? I have, I have always been an, an admirer of, of John Stuart Mill and On Liberty, but in the early 1970s, I co-founded a college house at the University of Pennsylvania that attracted every eccentric and interesting individual <laughs> on that campus. And we had 180 undergraduates living together with mm. four resident faculty, eight resident grad fellows, none of us in a police role, all of us there just as, as fellow members of a university community. And we had uh, the first wave of gay liberation uh, students and we had the leadership of uh, the campus crusade for Christ. We had ardent pro-choice feminists, and we had ardent pro-life Catholic Newman Center board. All in the same house. All in the same wow. house. We wow. had, at a time when, when Penn was maybe 2 to 3% African-American, uh, we attracted 20% uh, population of African-American students because it was a comfortable place just to be yourself. And since we have a business school at Penn, we even had black Republicans and we had black radicals. And people argued with each other all the time. People offended each other all the time. But freedom is an extraordinary medium in which to find yourself. And people learn to talk to each other. They learn to humanize their relationships 
they even often learn to learn from each other. And my own name went from Hey Fascist to Hey Allen. <laughs> and that experience, when the speech codes came, and when ever more segregated racial programs came to Penn, that experience burned with a certain fire, no pun intended, in my in my marrow. And I thought, no, don't don't take away freedom. Don't take away the ability to learn. It's a violation of rights, but it also worsens, not betters, human relationships on a campus. We need to know how each other thinks. Justice Louis Brandeis once said it perfectly, sunlight is the best disinfectant. I want to know <laughs> who the bigots are and how they think. I want to know who the people who think I'm evil are and how they think. You want people to learn not only from each other, but from the fact of who other people are and what they believe. That's, that is a central part of a university education, and we're denying it to this generation of students. Your name has been associated with something called the Water Buffalo Incident at Penn. What was that incident? Ah, one of the sweetest, most innocent kids I've ever met in 1993, spring of 1993. Edin Jakobowitz was studying in his dormitory at about 1 a.m. and uh, writing a paper. A Penn sorority was having its Founders Day celebration beneath the dormitory windows. They were stomp dancing and chanting and couldn't work. People were trying to sleep, couldn't sleep. All these facts were stipulated. He uh, looked out the window and said, would you please keep quiet? We're trying to work. 20 minutes later, the noise is yet louder and the stomp dancing yet louder. And he shouted out, will you water buffalo shut up? Now, that was stipulated. Sure. The women, it turned out, it was a black sorority. And the women believed that they had just been racially harassed. Right. And they called in the university police who came through the dormitory. Who was shouting? Who was shouting out? This, Eden, was the only kid who stepped forward and said, I shouted. I wanted them to be quiet. University police said, what did you shout? He said, I said, will you water buffalo shut up? He was charged with racial harassment on the grounds that water buffalo were large, dark beasts that lived in Africa. By the way, I got a letter from the head of the Royal Zoological Society in London letting me know the university had confused the gray cape buffalo in Africa with the uh, dark water buffalo in the Middle East, and he was offered the following plea deal. He would apologize to the women for racial harassment. He would lead a racial sensitivity seminar in his dormitory, and he would be on residential probation for the next three years, and his transcript would be stamped racial harasser, though that could be eliminated after three years of good behavior. He said, I didn't say anything racial. Uh, what was and, the origin of the term water buffalo in his usage? Well, that's, that's wonderfully interesting. I consulted with 20 leading experts on African-American and African folklore and, and linguistics. And I said, have you ever heard the term water buffalo used as a term of racial abuse? And one folklorist, a very distinguished folklorist of West African culture, an Israeli, Dan Benamos, I asked him, he said, why do you ask? I told him the case. And he said to me, oh, the kid's Israeli. And I said, the kid is Israeli. How do you know that? And he said, because the word for water buffalo in modern Hebrew is behema. And you use it to refer to noisy, unruly children. And I presented this to the university. They still wouldn't mm. drop the case. Mm. I had his testimony. They still wouldn't drop the case. And I called up Eden and I said, Eden, do you know why you use the term water buffalo? He said, no. He said, it was the first thing that came to my mind. They were making so much noise. And I said, what comes to your mind if I say behema? And he said, oh my goodness. 
And my rabbi called me that all the time. My parents called <laughs> me that all the time. My teachers called me that all the time. Well, I took the case public after six weeks of pleading with the university to drop the case. And the whole nation understood the absurdity of this. You could not distinguish between an editorial in the Washington Post, liberal Washington Times conservative. They all said Penn is absurd and the most liberal paper in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Daily News, published an editorial in which it said the assault on free speech at Penn is being conducted by a herd of dick-dicks. Another African animal, as I pointed out, dick-dicks would have had you brought up on charges not only of racial harassment, but of sexual harassment as well. And there was a show crossfire that involved a liberal and a conservative who would always disagree. Right. This was the only show in the history of crossfire in which the two hosts came back and agreed that what was happening at universities was disgraceful. U universities seem to have their own political cultures, their own sort of in-house ways of dealing with political issues or issues of power on campuses. What has it been like at FIRE? And you were there for quite some time. You did mm -hmm. pro bono work there. Yeah, no? I was pro bono the head of FIRE for six years. What was it like at FIRE when you were there and, and then you handed it off to uh, Greg Lukianoff mm -hmm. and, and his staff, bringing the public eye onto largely private mm -hmm. university matters of political nature such as these? The, the great vulnerability of universities is that they cannot defend in public what they say privately to me and what they say privately to themselves. Now that's a real vulnerability if you can't defend in public what you do privately. So FIRE won virtually all of its cases and in terms of speech codes mm at public universities. FIRE has never lost a case. It has won every single case it has brought forward. But you feel as if you are King Canute standing at the water's edge telling the tides not to come in. Mark Twain, who wouldn't last a moment at a university right. with speech codes, right. nor would Richard Pryor, but I mean, Mark Twain wouldn't make it through a freshman year at any university that had a bias incident reporting system. Uh, Mark well, Twain offended, offended everyone, but it's a tie that always comes in. Mark Twain once said that the only urge stronger than the sexual urge in human beings was the urge to censor from one's own point of view. Universities, I fear, are an example of the truth of that. What was your childhood like, Alan, if I can ask? Ah, I grew up in pre-gentrified Jersey City, New Jersey. I went to a high school that sent 3% to college. Uh, most of those went to the local state teacher's college. I was groomed from the moment I got there because someone had established a scholarship from Dickinson High School, Jersey City, uh, to Princeton University, which they rarely got to use. So when, when people thought this, this kid might make it, I was groomed. So I went from this wonderful blue-collar high school in Jersey City to Princeton University. I loathed the atmosphere at the Princeton I encountered mm. in the early 1960s. Well, why is that? My classmates truly were racist. Their attitudes toward women were despicable. Their attitude toward gays mm. was violently mm. despicable. And here they were, the creme de la creme of private schools and, and uh, Southern education. I much preferred, in, immeasurably preferred, the kids I had gone to high school with at Dickinson High School. And uh, I hated the eating club system at Princeton. Right. And there were enough of us by the time I had hit my sophomore year that the university created a, an open admission alternative to the eating club center. What was the eating club system? eating club system was one of selective membership at the the clubs people wanted to get into 
based upon pedigree, wealth, social standing, uh, how cool you were, how athletic you were, but it was awful. And people, uh, people would be visited over the course of three, four nights by uh, people from the eating clubs, and then they wouldn't come back, they wouldn't come back. Right. Uh, some people got no bids, and the eating clubs would say, we'll try to get you into this or that. It was a despicable system. People bought moose heads to hang on their walls for bicker week so that they might look look cool. And the eating, the uh, alternative to the eating clubs, Wilcox Hall, Woodrow Wilson Society, uh, was open membership. It attracted every eccentric on campus. It attracted everyone who would have been considered uncool, but I found them the coolest people uh, at Princeton. Uh, they, they, they made my, my time there. And after that, I did my graduate work at Harvard. When I was studying in France for my dissertation, 66, 67, okay. is when Harvard went up in flames. So uh, where did you see 68 from? Where, where was your vantage right, on and, those movies? Uh, 60, 68, I was sitting at a desk typing my 67, 68, the year Paris went right. up. So my, my friends explained my retrograde nature by telling me that I missed two revolutions. Oh, right. But uh, I must say, I have there was much about the 60s I admired. The softening of male-female relations, mm -hmm. the increase in, in toleration in matters of, of sexuality, I preferred the flower children to SDS mm -hmm. and, and people who wanted to be disruptive. But then in what seemed to me a generational swindle of epic proportions, the people who had given us the free speech movement mm. gave us speech codes. Mm. The people who had opposed mandatory chapel gave us mandatory sensitivity and diversity training. And the people who used to smoke pot openly on college lawns banned kegs of beer um, at undergraduate parties in their fear of disinhibited hormones how above do you account all for testosterone. That? How do you account for that? Hypocrisy. How's that? <laughs> what, what, what are the differences? Well, I mean, yes. the real answer, I mean, good, the more good, serious good. answer yes. to your question is they said that what they wanted was freedom of speech, freedom of association, the right to define themselves by their own lights, and they did want those things for themselves. But when college students did not look up to them as gurus and as moral leaders, it turned out that they only wanted it for their own political agenda. Why do you say that students didn't look up to them in the, in the 80s or the, the 90s? Uh, well, there were two slaps in the face they had to endure. One, the movement from acid rock to disco, which, which struck them as an appalling turn of culture. And two, and I think you can date coercive political correctness from this, in 1984, a majority of college students voted for Ronald Reagan. Mm. And suddenly the generation of the mm. 60s thought, oh my God, someone has to save these children from themselves and from the America that's produced them. Other than Vietnam, what are the differences between student unrest in the late 60s to student unrest today on college campuses? Oh, I think that there is no equivalent today, mm -hmm. cross my fingers, of the willingness to use violence that existed in the 60s uh, mm. If you look at Cornell, 1968, it was occupied by black students calling for more affirmative action, calling for changes in curriculum, who were armed. They were armed students. There's this iconic picture of them walking out of the hall they occupied in victory. Rifles raised in the air. Their leader was Tom Jones, who came went on to be chief financial officer of TIAA-CREF, one of the largest family of investment funds in the country, interviewed by the Wall Street Journal when he became the head of TIAA-CREF. He said, well, we were trying to work for more democracy. We made mistakes, and I'm now a critic of affirmative action. But meanwhile, Tom Jones would and, and, and his allies 
commandeer the student radio station. Mm. And they said of professors who should not, who did not agree with their demands and who did not agree with their methods, they, they said, Alan Bloom should die like a dog in the street. Mm. Walter Burns should die like a dog in the street. And Bloom Clinton, was the closing of the American the Amer- mind. The closing yeah. of the American mind. He left. Walter Burns left. Clinton Rossiter had been devoted to Cornell, great American, early American historian, had been devoted to Cornell all of his life. He called the university president. He said, I'm going to need protection. They're calling for me to be shot in the streets. And he was basically told, you made your bed, now lie in it. Um, He committed suicide. I, I don't think that America would tolerate that level of intimidation, threat. But the the other thing to bear in mind if we go through another period of student demonstrations is the double standard. Mm -hmm. Right now you have groups demanding progressive things, so-called progressive things, I don't think they're progressive, but so-called progressive things who occupy the office of the president. If a pro-life group of students occupied the office of any university president and said, we have here a list of non-negotiable demands, the first of which is that the university stop providing abortion counseling to undergraduates, the police would be there in five minutes. These kids would be expelled from a university. But freedom means that the same rules apply equally to all of us. Otherwise, it's just a struggle for power. It's just a struggle for power over who gets to define who has the rights and who doesn't, and what a tragedy that would be, both for higher education and for America. Do you think that administrations in many ways share some of the views of students? It seems, I mean, it seems to me that one of the, one of the major moves in the 60s was a call for the ending of in loco parentis, that administrations are right. here. Which as they now have restored with a vengeance. Why, why do you suppose that is? Same thing, that... They wanted to be treated as full young adults, as full adults. But now that they occupied and their their disciples occupy positions of power, they look on undergraduates and they say, oh, these are just children. These are just children with uh, undeveloped, not fully developed minds or brains. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, there was an anthem of the free speech movement that students sang. It was Phil Oakes's, I'm gonna say it now. And the chorus was this, oh, you'd like to be my father and you'd like to be my dad and give me kisses when I'm good and hug me when I'm bad. But since I've left my parents, I've forgotten how to bow. So when I've got something to say, sir, I'm going to say it now. The same, the same individuals who thrilled to Phil Oakes's I'm going to say it now have imposed speech codes upon students in our universities. As I say, it is a generational swindle of truly epic proportions. Oh, and I'll let that be the last word. Thanks very much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. It's been a privilege. That was Alan Charles Kors. If you're interested in Alan's work, check out his faculty webpage at Penn. With that, we'll move on to Louis Menand. Dr. Menand, or Luke, as he's called, is Anne T. and Robert M. Bass, professor of English at Harvard. He's also a contributing writer at The New Yorker, and since the late 80s, has served as an editor at other magazines, such as The New Republic and The New York Review of Books. In 2001, he published a book about 19th century American philosophy titled The Metaphysical Club that won the Pulitzer Prize for History. Luke's most recent book, The Marketplace of Ideas, takes up questions about higher education that have been bouncing around the heads of most people who work or study at universities and colleges across the nation. Why, for one, is it so hard to institute a general education curriculum? Why do the humanities undergo a crisis? Why has interdisciplinarity become a magic word? And why do professors all tend to have the same politics? Professor Manan generously shed some light on a few of these matters, 
Not only that, he put up with my somewhat stilted questioning and the beads of sweat on my brow. This was, as you might be able to tell, my first ever interview. Listening to it now, I think I sound somewhat frightened, honestly, but that's okay. Why hide it? All right, here's our interview with Louis Menand. Great. So it's uh, December 11th, 2015. Uh, I'm Joe Hogan, Program Manager of the Common Ground Initiative at the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. I'm joined by Gleaves Whitney, the Howenstein Center, uh, the director of the Howenstein Center, and Professor Louis Menand, professor of English at Harvard University and a uh, contributing writer at The New Yorker. Professor Menand, thanks very much for joining us on uh, Common Ground. It's nice to be here, Joe. Uh, Professor Menand, you lead a professional and intellectual life both inside and outside the academy. You're a professor of English at Harvard. You've published academic work in literary studies as well as intellectual history and cultural history. Your 2001 book, The Metaphysical Club, won the Pulitzer Prize for history. But you are also a contributing writer at The New Yorker and have served as editor of a number of magazines, including The New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, and The New Republic. How have you achieved this unique harmony of what many people would see as two kinds of intellectual and professional life? Uh, it was purely by accident. Um, when I started out, after I left college, uh, I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to be a writer for general audience readers, that is, a magazine writer. Um, but I decided to go to graduate school in English. I didn't really imagine that I would have an academic career. This was in New York City. Um, but I got excited by teaching. I got interested in the academic side of literary study. Uh, I got a terrific job. So I stayed in the profession. And it's fortunate for me that the kind of writing that I do for magazines and the kind of writing I do in my books is writing that academics find um, interesting. Um, so I've been able to have that, uh, that career that you described. But it's not a case of trying to do two different things at, uh, at the same time. It's really the case of just doing the one thing that I do, which is to write and having it work out uh, in both uh, worlds. Your 2010 book, The Marketplace of Ideas, advances a critique of American higher education that I would say could only be offered by someone who is both an insider and outsider in the academy. Uh, what is generally your critique of American higher education? Uh, what needs to change about it? Well, the book is a critique only in the sense that it's an attempt to look at the reasons why certain kinds of reforms that most people would like to see in higher education, for example, more interdisciplinarity. Uh, another example would be better general education courses for undergraduates, courses that they take outside of their majors, uh, that those reforms are actually very hard to bring about. And so it's a look at the history of higher education to see how the system evolved in a way that makes it inflexible uh, to, uh, for certain kinds of uh, reforms to take place. It's not a criticism of academics or a criticism of the idea of higher education in universities, of course I'm totally supportive of. It's just an effort to try to understand why certain things we all really want to do or most of us want to do are difficult to do. You Well, you critique or you rather um, take a critical view of uh, doctoral education in particular. Could you talk a bit about that and what you think needs to change about doctoral education, particularly in the humanities? Uh, so I think that doctoral education, which is where we produce new professors, is the most conservative uh, uh, piece of the higher educational system. Uh, it has been roughly the same for over 100 years, um, and it consists, as everybody knows, of making someone into a specialist in an academic discipline, um, <clears throat> having them produce a dissertation which will become a monograph within that specialty, developing a network of peers who are also experts in that one subspecialty or specialty within a field, uh, and then rewarding that person for his or her success in producing scholarship that appeals to that relatively small group of people who understand the subject as well as he or she does. Then, after we put these people through all this training, which is usually six to eight or nine years of graduate education, another six or seven years as a ladder faculty before we give them tenure, then we ask them to be interdisciplinary, to teach their subject to people who are not specialists in the field, to write for non-academic audiences, and do all kinds of things that we never trained them to do. So my general feeling is that the place to reform higher education, if there's things we want professors to be doing that they're not doing or find difficult to do, the place to make that happen is the way we train them in doctoral education. 
You're a humanist, or rather a humanities scholar. Uh, that fact gives your view on the academic humanities added force. Are the humanities really, as is often said, in crisis, or is that a concern just borrowed from the culture wars of the 90s, or uh, are, humanities, are the humanities always in crisis? Yeah, I mean, as long as I've been in the business, they've never not been in some kind of crisis. But the crisis is kind of built in as it were, to uh, arts and humanities work within higher education because <clears throat> the research university is designed to produce scientific research uh, principally. Um, so the interpretation or appreciation, understanding of works of art, literature, and philosophy, which is most of what happens in the humanities, um, or the interpretation of history, um, isn't quantifiable in the same way, reproducible in the same way that research outcomes in science uh, are. So it gives the humanities a kind of weirdly inside-outside position within the academy, and therefore it raises, const constantly raises intellectual questions or philosophical questions about what our mission is and how we define it and how we justify it and so forth. That's healthy because actually it's good for the rest of the university to have people within it who are kind of skeptical about claims about uh, knowledge and knowledge production. Um, so to that extent, it's probably been a good thing that the humanities have constantly been neurotically obsessed with uh, their own status. But what's happened since the downturn or recession of 2008 is that material conditions, economic conditions, have also put a huge amount of pressure on these fields, pressure to justify themselves in fairly utilitarian terms, which they're not good at. In fact, it's quite difficult to do. So I think that the situation in which the crisis we're in now is a much more serious crisis because it, it actually does involve exogenous factors that we don't have a lot of control over. It's no longer just a philosophical one. So you're right. I think that humanities scholars are so often called to justify their work, uh, not just to incoming students, but to administrations and to uh, the general public. Uh, do you think that in this call to justify themselves, they're forced to instrumentalize their work? What, what, what do you think uh, they need to do in order to present the worth uh, and value of their work to a public that seems uh, not to view the humanities as necessarily relevant to what a lot of people view as the real uh, mission of education, which is just to produce uh, laborers for the workforce? Well, that is kind of the purpose of education, actually. I mean, the reason that we make a big social investment in higher education and the reason we have so many public universities in the United States is precisely that. We're trying to produce an educated workforce, and um, as we should. So there's, it's a really necessary social investment. And it's quite natural, therefore, that a lot of the uh, taxpayer-supported uh, funding for higher education goes into STEM fields or fields where we feel there's economic growth and opportunity out there. So that's, I don't have a problem with that. What I think we want people to understand is that what's distinctive about American higher education, which makes it different from every other educational system in the world, is that we offer a liberal education, which includes in addition to training, giving people the knowledge and skills to do economically productive work, also liberalizes their minds. Um, and that includes all the kind of liberal arts uh, and sciences fields that are under fire right now. So that's what needs to be defended. For the humanities to have their part in that defense, I think they need to hook up what they're doing, the subject matters that they're teaching, with these other disciplines to show how the humanities and cultural studies influence the way we think about technology and science, influence the way we think about ethics, the way we think about politics, um, how it's connected to discoveries that are being made in cognitive science, how it relates to arguments about copyright, about technological reproduction of artworks and all that kind of thing. That puts the humanities in play with other disciplines that are uh, also important in the world and shows that they're part of, uh, part of life um, and that there are opportunities for students interested in that part of the world to, to have careers. Um, I don't think that should be hard to do. A little bit of what's holding us back from doing that is this disciplinary structure, which which we have reflexively been very defensive about, that we study in each of the academic disciplines only one kind of cultural form. So is interdisciplinarity then the answer? Or um, I believe you've argued before and in your book, The Marketplace of Ideas, that in a sense, interdisciplinarity is just a sort of ratification of disciplinarity. Um, and what you seem to propose is a 
more general view of uh, liberal education as general education. Could you respond to that at all? Yeah, that's right. I think the traditional form of interdisciplinarity is to bring uh, to bring scholars, professors from two different disciplines together in a classroom. Um, but that just ratifies disciplinarity because each professor is functioning qua professor of literature and sociology or qua professor of economics and anthropology. So it's not it's not true interdisciplinarity. If we, what we mean by interdisciplinarity is the ability to transcend disciplinary boundaries and to approach subjects in a somewhat more holistic manner. In order to do that, we have to train people how to do it. Um, right now, there's a lot of that going on in the humanities, but it's very ad hoc because there's really no set way of teaching people how to do that kind of interdisciplinary work. Everybody understands that the world out there as a whole, and we have to, we can't just divide it up into sections and think we're actually getting at stuff that we want to get at, but we need to help people find ways to approach it that aren't constrained by traditional disciplinary boundaries. How, how would you propose to do that? Um, it's going to be a process of, yeah, it's a process of rethinking doctoral education so that the goal of doctoral education is no longer simply to produce a monograph that adds a brick to the, to the edifice of a particular subfield, um, but to think about um, getting graduate students to imagine uh, paths from their own particular discipline to the kind of subjects that are covered in other disciplines. And we have to get better at that ourselves in order to teach students how to do it. Thanks uh, very much, Professor Menand. Uh, Gleaves, do you have any uh, questions? Well, I do. I would like to get your take on all the current controversies that are taking place right now on campuses that have gotten a lot of national attention regarding free speech. And I think you um, have some interesting insights, for example, in uh, what's been happening at Yale. And to the extent that you're at liberty to discuss any of those, I would very much appreciate the backstory. Uh so I don't want to get into the, the the people who've been involved with the. Let me explain. So the Yale, as probably your listeners know, the Yale situation involved a directive or a memo that was sent out, I guess, by email by the deans at Yale at Halloween, uh, asking students to be sensitive about costumes that might give offense. Um, and that was responded to by uh, a housemaster uh, or mistress, I don't know what they call them at Yale, Erica Christakis, who wrote an email questioning the um, uh, usefulness of this directive. Um, and that became public and there was a big, um, a big uh, it blew up at Yale. Um, and there was a confrontation between one of the students and her husband, Nicholas Christakis. So um, the Christakis's were both at Harvard. Uh, they were also housemasters at Harvard, and I, I knew them slightly then. Um, and we were they were very popular, and we were sorry to see them go to Yale. Um, I think that one of the things that's strange to me about how this uh, particular episode has played out in the press uh, and in the public debate is the framing of it as a free speech issue. Uh, Yale never said that it would sanction any student who wore a costume that was deemed offensive or inappropriate. It was simply a suggestion that students think about the costume and the effect that it might have on students who um, saw themselves reflected as a stereotype in that costume. That seems to me completely appropriate. It's not a violation of someone's free speech to suggest that they think about the effect of what they're going to express. And interestingly, Erica Christakis's email also did not uh, did not complain on free speech grounds. She actually proposed a kind of developmental psychological basis for allowing students to do things that might be transgressive or offensive as part of growing up. So she didn't claim for a First Amendment uh, grounds for objecting to the dean's uh, email. So it's a little peculiar that it's gotten blown into an argument about free speech. I think part of the reason that it did that is because, and also when the student yelled at Nicholas Christakis in this kind of famous viral video, um, it's not a violation of someone's free speech to say, F you. It just isn't. I mean, you can say that. So she was she was maybe inappropriate or maybe that was an unpleasant exchange, but there was nothing having to do with uh, free speech in that 
But I think that part of the, I think you may have suggested this, Gleaves, that part of the reason that it's been framed that way is because it recalls earlier debates in the 80s and 90s about hate speech. And the hate speech thing did involve academic freedom and free speech because there was an attempt or there was a suggestion about imposing a speech code, so-called, in which students, in fact, would be dragged before various kinds of disciplinary bodies if they use certain words or and so forth. Um, that doesn't, that's not what's going on right now, as I understand it, certainly not at Yale. So I think, I think we should ought to hold back a little bit on making this into a constitutional matter um, until there's actual evidence that somebody is being sanctioned for what they're saying, and to try to see it for what it is, which is, which is the difficulty of operating uh, in a residential higher education institution like Yale and uh, a space that is both intellectual and social. That's very hard to do. Um, and I think the student who certainly said inappropriate things, and Nicholas Christakis was not wrong in saying that a house or college is a social space. A classroom is an intellectual space, and you have to be able to understand there's a difference uh, between those things. What is your personal view of speech codes when they do arise on campus? I'm an opponent of speech codes. I'm an opponent of punishing speech and disciplining speech. I think it's counterproductive. Uh, it just it has the function actually of of uh, amplifying the offensive speech by giving it some kind of constitutional status. I think that's not really where anybody wants to go with this. Um, it's a hard issue. We have to live with uh, we have to live with a lot of static uh, in this area, particularly as as, as universities, colleges, and universities in the United States continue to emphasize diversity in their student bodies, which is, I think everybody agrees is a great social uh, good, uh, you're going to get a lot of static and you have to be able to uh, handle it. Um, and I think what happened at Yale, unfortunately, is that you know um, the spark blew up the keg and uh, you, don't want, you don't want that to happen because then it's no longer a real discussion. Then it becomes a, a kind of confrontation. And that's unfortunate. But when you're even when you're at that place, it's a it's a learning opportunity, as we say. You know, it's a way for people to really reflect on what's important. Several times you've used a most interesting word when you've been with us uh, these past couple of days. And I don't think Americans typically understand the word, even a lot of people in the academy. But you've talked about the German concept Bildung, uh, education. Would you please elaborate as as the uh, Universities were created as the model was created in Germany, which was creating the you know the silos, the disciplines, generating world class research and all. There was also this concept of building parallel to that. What does that mean, and how does it apply today? Yeah, so uh, we were talking about the way in which the American higher education essentially imported or imitated, reproduced think of it as a German model for the research university. And this happened in the years after the American Civil War. That's when the first <clears throat> sort of real doctoral programs began, began um, being created. And I said that the, it's interesting that we imported that part of the German educational ideal, uh, the research part, an incredibly valuable way to produce knowledge of incredible social, um, social worth. But we didn't really we didn't really import the concept of Bildung. The concept of Bildung dates from the late uh, 18th, early 19th century in German thought, and it has to do with the idea that education is a, kind, a way of liberating the mind from the constraints of, let's just say, professional ways of thinking. So when you think about when students go to professional school, law school or medical school, they're being, their minds are being channeled to think in a particular way which is defined by the specialism, the specialty or the profession that they're going to enter. So when you go to law school, they tell you, we're training you to think like a lawyer. That means there are certain ways of thinking about the law that are not the way a lawyer thinks about the law, and you shouldn't think about the law that way. That's illiberal from the point of view of undergraduate education, where we're trying to get people to think about things in unconventional ways, to think outside the box. So that's a great value to have. That's a great ability, mental ability to have that will even help you when you're in a box, which everybody will get into eventually and when they have a career. It helps to be able to think around the parameters of the particular, uh, the particular um, uh, channel that you're being uh, funneled into. And put it this way, we say that education is a way of taking uh, talented people and putting them to social use by training them to do a particular task. We want them to 
internalize the value of that task so they feel motivated to do it for personal reasons. But actually, that's not really what's going on. We're actually engineering them to do stuff that society needs to get done. So one of the things that we want to give them is the ability to think outside of that outside of that uh, box. And liberal education does that. How do we know this is a valuable thing for students to get? Because people from all over the world want to come to the United States for college because they don't have this kind of education anywhere else. And Americans ought to recognize the value of what we have. It's part of what makes us successful economically as well as making us uh, better citizens. Dr. Manan, that's the question. Those are the questions I had for you. Joe, do you have any other questions? I think that's it. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Manan, for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was Louis Manan, professor of English at Harvard and contributing writer at The New Yorker. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and records many episodes, including this one. And Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.